So, as I said yesterday, today it's architecture, tomorrow it's Wagner, music, opera. Uh, first, I would like to justify the term I will use a lot, postmodern architecture. I know that this term is half forgotten today, but I still think it has its use. And the criterion is simply one of, how should I call it, efficiency. I think that simply what Lyotard and others did is by applying the name to cover a certain complex great number of phenomena, just to apply on all these phenomena, from economic phenomena to art phenomena to social phenomena and so on, to cultural phenomena, a name, postmodernism, it did provide some additional, how should I call it, intelligibility. It introduced a new order of intelligibility into the confused multiplicity of historical experience. So I think in this elementary sense, the term is justified. My thesis will be that, to use terms from my own theory, what is called postmodern architecture is closely related to the term that I use a lot, the term of parallax. Parallax as a shift in perspective directly inscribed into the object of our gaze, the object itself, and already at the most immediate level. If you think about the best-known buildings by Libeskind or Frank Gehry, their work often appears as a desperate or joyous attempt to combine two incompatible structuring principles within the same building. In the case of Libeskin, it's usually horizontal or horizontal, vertical, and oblique cubes. In the case of Frank Gehry, traditional house combined with modern concrete, corrugated iron, glass supplements, as if two principles are locked in a struggle of hegemony. Like, again, the example is simple, that it cannot be simpler. This is a typical Libeskind. You see, it's as if, it's almost like, a, it's very primitive, I know, uh, my explanation, not the building. I mean, uh, it's <laughs> as, if, as, if, as, if, as if we look at the object from different perspectives, almost like in cubism, and the object tries to inscribe into its structure different perspectives. So it's, it's as if the object, the building, materializes different here, even clearer, materializes different perspectives, different structuring principles. And, of course, the first reaction of my Marxist mind is that this has something, has to have something to do with social antagonism. So, how does an ideological edifice, real architectural edifice included, how does it deal with social antagonisms? I want to begin with an example which I often refer to, but I will not be repeating myself. I will give a totally different twist to it, because recently I discovered that I simply missed the point, the way I was dealing with what? With the famous example from Fred Jameson's The Political Unconscious about the unique facial decorations of the Caduveo Indians from Brazil. They use Caduveo Indians, I quote here Claude Lévi-Strauss from Trist Topic, they use a design which is symmetrical, 
but yet lies across an oblique axis, a complicated situation based upon two contradictory forms of duality and resulting in a compromise brought about by a secondary opposition between the ideal axis of the object itself, the human face, and the ideal axis of the figure which it represents. So basically it's the same structural imbalance as the one in the Libeskind buildings that I just showed you. It is as if there are two possible axes, one simple horizontal, uh, sorry, rather vertical axis of the face, and then the building itself, an oblique axis. Why this strange tension in the structuring principle? Rather, combination of two incompatible structuring principles. Here is Jameson's comment, a quote. Already on the purely formal level, this visual text has been grasped as a contradiction by way of the curiously provisional and asymmetrical resolution it proposes for that contradiction. So again, it's contradiction, a structural tension inscribed into the very formal fabric of the object. It's incidentally a little bit like a map of Manhattan, where, as you know, you have horizontal, vertical, and then oblique Broadway. Uh, it, then, in the next crucial move, Levi-Strauss interprets this formal contradiction as not a reflection, but as a symbolic act, a transposition or displacement of the basic social imbalance or asymmetry or antagonism of the society of this Latino-American Indian tribe, Caduveo. Here is the crucial description. Caduveo are a hierarchical society, and their nascent hierarchy is already the place of the emergence, if not of political power in the strict sense, then at least of relations of domination. The inferior status of women, the subordination of youth to elders, and the development of hereditary aristocracy. Yet, Whereas this latent power structure is among the neighboring Guana and Bororo tribes, masked by a division into Moetis, which cuts across the three castes and whose exogamous exchange appears to function in a non-hierarchical, essentially egalitarian way, it is openly present in Caduveo life as surface inequality and conflict. The social institutions of the Guana and Bororo, on the other hand, provide a realm of appearance in which real hierarchy and inequality are dissimulated by the reciprocity of moieties and his halves of the tribe, and in which, therefore, asymmetry of class is balanced by the symmetry of these moieties, of these halves. End of quote from... Uh, end of quote from... Uh, from, this is Jameson's uh, description. Uh, is this also not our predicament? Do we, have, do we not have in our societies exactly the same tension? We are split between formal legal equality, sustained by the institutions of democratic state, and class distinctions enforced by the economic system. We leave the tension between politically correct respect for human rights and so on, and the growing inequalities, gated communities, exclusions, and so on, and so on. And here, 
This is the point I missed. Here, Levi-Strauss deserves a precise and close reading. What he is saying is not that simply and directly the Caduveo facial decorations formulate an imaginary resolution of real contradictions. It is rather that they supplement the lack of a properly functioning appearance which would have been inscribed into the very social institutional organization. In other words, we are not dealing with a longing for real equality, but with the longing for a proper appearance. And I think this is the formula of ideology. It's a very nice distinction. You got it. They are a society where we have all the usual stuff of emerging class distinctions. Women are less than men, elders uh, rule, aristocracy, all that stuff, and so on. Other tribes must this with some complicated intergroup relations exchange so that what really are class distinctions, already hierarchical, are based by the symmetries of horizontal exchange, so that at least the appearance is maintained, the appearance of equality and so on. Here, the appearance is missing. So that's what I like so much that, you know, it's not we are not equal, we want it. It's not, of course to put it, it's not as in ordinary bourgeois democracy and so on, where you say real inequality is masked through the appearance of democratic, sorry, of democratic equality and so on and so on. What is missing here with these tribes is precisely this appearance itself, which of course is never only an appearance, it's, it's an appearance embodied in, I'm not dismissing this appearance as only an appearance, it's an appearance embodied in very concrete social procedures, rituals and so on, which is why, as we all know, nonetheless, we shouldn't follow the, the simplistic Marxist line of uh, just formal democracy. Formal democracy means a forum, a forum which is a social reality. And this forum, if it, even if it's just a forum of equality, at least gives you, as it were, an Archimedean point of support from where to start bombarding society with demands for, for real equality. So again, what is missing in this tribe is the proper appearance. The idea is that other tribes are... So, again, this is the beauty of Lewis Cross's reading. What this strange asymmetry of face expresses is not a longing for real equality, but for a proper socially functioning appearance. And I think the same goes... That would be my reading. I tried to think about an architectural equivalent. If you know Oscar Niemeyer's plan of Brazil, Usually it's read just as some kind of egalitarian, okay, for our tastes today, a little bit totalitarian, not for my tastes, uh, <laughs> utopia of a city. But I think that Niemeyer, and I read some biography of him, he was well aware that Brazil is even far from a truly functioning liberal bourgeois democracy. It's more a longing for a proper appearance, the city. Brazil, uh, Brasilia, the city, the capital is more, the architecture of the city is a dream of a properly functioning appearance. This is why Jameson is fully justified to talk about the political unconscious. There is a coded message in an architectural formal play, and the message delivered by a building often functions as the return of the repressed 
of the official ideology. Recall Wittgenstein's motto, what we cannot directly talk about, it can be shown by the form of our activity. What the official ideology cannot openly talk about can be shown by the mute signs of a building. And this brings us to an unexpected result. It's not only, if we are leftists, our first reaction would have been, of course, we live in a hierarchical society, the dream, the utopian dream is the one of more justice, equality, and so on and so on. Jameson uh, points out that quite often we get the opposite paradox, that uh, the fantasy embodied in the mute language of buildings is not necessarily the utopia of justice, freedom, equality, betrayed by actual social relations. This fantasy can also articulate a longing for inequality, for clear hierarchy and class distinctions. I think this is, it's a very simplistic reading, but I think it's a moment of truth in it. This is how we should read the famous Stalinist neo-Gothic architecture. I mean, even at a very primitive level, you know, with all those, my favorite buildings, of course, from Lomonosov University in Moscow to Home of Culture, or that House of Culture in Warsaw, and so on, all this neo-Gothic architecture, it, in a way, enacts the return of the repress of the official egalitarian, emancipatory, social, socialist ideology. The weird desire for hierarchy and social distinctions. So it is not simply that ideology also permits the alleged extra-ideological strata of everyday life. This materialization of ideology renders visible inherent antagonisms which the explicit formulation of ideology cannot afford to acknowledge. It is as if an ideological edifice, if it is to function normally, must obey a kind of imp of perversity and articulate its inherent antagonism in the externality of its material existence. Social oppression and hierarchy concealed in the explicit Stalinist ideological text, which talks about equality and justice. Social oppression and hierarchy are thereby acted out, staged if not stated. You see, this is for me the wonder of ideology, that ideology never lies. This is my basic rule. It tells the truth. Just for example, if you are in, let's say you visit Moscow in the late 30s, you say, oh, but it's a fake equality, there's a new hierarchy and so on. I mean, an intelligent guy will tell you, of course, we all know this, look at our buildings, I mean. The, the mystery is how the system not only tolerated it, but even required it. Why? I think that this was the only way for the people to accept hierarchy. It had to be remarked, you know, so that the message that the entire Stalinist ideology, official, explicit in texts, and ideology embodied in architecture, the, the message you get is a precise image of reality. It's officially, we are an egalitarian society, but effectively hierarchy, but hierarchy, which remains mute, which it's not allowed to articulate it. Uh, in this sense, I claim, architecture often not only illustrates ideology, 
in this simplistic sense that if you have a technocratic society, architecture will try to repeat this utilitarian functionalist vision and so on. No, architecture does more. It brings out its stages in a mute way the repressed truth, the repressed antagonism of it. Which is why, if I may repeat, it's my favorite, from the old Hitchcock book, which is in any case now out of print, that I did. In this sense, I think one should read Psycho, Hitchcock's masterpiece, as the staging of an architectural antagonism. I always thought that Psycho is the greatest film about architecture. Norman Bates is split precisely between the two houses, the modern horizontal motel and the vertical gothic mother's house. He is literally split between the two. Remember, forever running between the two, up and down. Never finding a proper place of his own. And may, probably, I hope you know that these two houses both have precise models in painting. No? That the motel is Edward Hopper, all those motels. And uh, the other one, mother's house, is also Hopper, but this early Hopper housed by the rail railroad, I think. Uh, in this sense, the unheimlich, uncanny character of the film's end means that in his full identification with the mother, Norman Bates finally found his heim, his home. In modernist works like Psycho, this split is still visible, while the main goal of today's postmodern architecture is in a way to obfuscate it. Let's just recall the so-called new urbanism with its return to small family houses in small towns, with front porches recreating the cozy atmosphere of the local community. Clearly, this is the case of architecture as ideology at its purest, providing an imaginary, although real, materialized in the actual disposition of houses, an imaginary solution to a real social deadlock which has nothing to do with architecture and all with late capitalist dynamics. A more ambiguous case of the same antagonism is the work of Frank Gehry. He takes as the basis of one of the two poles of the antagonism, either the old-fashioned family house or a modernist concrete and glass building, and then either submits this, let's say, old-fashioned family house to a kind of cubist anamorphic distortion, curved angles of walls and windows, or combines the old family home with a modernist supplement. So here is my final hypothesis. If the Bates Motel from Hitchcock's Psycho were to be built by Frank Gehry, directly combining the old mother's house and the flat modern hotel into a new hybrid entity, there would have been no need for Norman to kill his victims, since he would have been relieved of the unbearable tension that compels him to run between the two places. He would have a third place of mediation between the two extremes. And again, it would be interesting to read many of modern, not only works of art, but here, real-life occurrences as something which relies very much on its architectural background. For example, I think that a year ago, when I already talked about it here, that Austrian monster, Josef Fritzl, you know who. Again, it's, the whole problem is the problem of architecture. The first floor, happy Christian family, beneath the monstrous or it, the monstrous primordial father. It's symbolic law, symbolic father, the monstrous father. Now, let's make a crucial step 
further. Levi-Strauss himself applies this same type of analysis that he did with Caduveo faces also to urbanism and architecture in his wonderful short essay, Do Dual Organizations Exist? where he deals with the spatial disposition of buildings in the Winnebago, one of the great late tribes. I want to focus here on another aspect that I neglected in my reading. I repeat it a couple of times in my book of this Levi-Straussian example. Levi-Strauss makes here an additional crucial point. Since the two subgroups of the tribe form one and the same tribe living in the same village, this identity somehow has to be symbolically inscribed. How? By what Levi-Strauss ingeniously calls the zero institution, a kind of institutional counterpart to the famous mana, the empty signifier with no determinate meaning, since it signifies only the presence of meaning as such, in opposition to its absence. A specific institution which has no positive determinate function, its only function is the purely negative one of signaling the presence of social institutions as such, in contrast to pre-social chaos. It is the reference to such a zero institution which enables all members of the tribe to experience themselves as such as members of the same tribe. This zero institution is then, for me, ideology at its purest. The direct embodiment of the ideological function of providing a neutral, all-encompassing space in which social antagonism is obliterated, in which all members of society can recognize themselves. And my hypothesis is that big, okay, I developed in one of my books as one function of this zero institution, the modern notion of, nat of, sorry, of nation. Nation is precisely this kind of a zero institution, in the sense of wherever you are in social edifice, there is a zero level of belonging where we all belong, our nation. My hypothesis now is that big performance arts complexes, the paragon of today's architecture, try to impose themselves as this kind of architectural zero institutions. Their very conflicting meaning, amusement and high art, profane and sacred, exclusive and popular, cancel themselves mutually so that the outcome is the presence of meaning as such, as opposed to non-meaning. Their meaning is to have meaning, to be islands of meaning in the flow of our meaningless daily existence. In order to provide to provide a brief insight into the parallax nature of these performance art venues, let me begin by the fundamental feature of postmodern architecture, the, the end of the so-called expressive correspondence between the inside, the division of buildings into rooms and spaces for different activities, and the outside of a building. With postmodern architecture, this correspondence breaks down, we move towards radical incommensurability. The functions, that is to say, the rooms, the interior, the inner space, the inner structure of a building, the interior rooms hang with their, within their enormous container like so many floating organs. Look, 
this is a typical rain coalhouse where you have this at its purest. This is the zero level of postmodernism. It's just a box and you see the gap between inside and outside. It's like floating organs, no, no relation of expressivity there. However, one should not misunderstand this emphasis on the incommensurability between outside and inside. One should not misunderstand it as a critique relying on the demand for some kind of non-alienated continuity between the two. The incommensurability between outside and inside is, I claim, a kind of transcendental a priori. In our most elementary phenomenological experience, the reality we see through a window when we look outside from inside is always minimally spectral, not as fully real as the closed space where we are. This is why when driving a car or looking through a window of a house, we perceive the reality outside in a strange, derealized state, as if one is watching a performance on a screen. When you open the window of a car, the direct impact of the external reality always causes a minimal shock. You are overwhelmed by the proximity of the outside. This is also why when we enter the closed space of a house, we are often surprised. It seems that the inside is larger than the outside, as if the house is larger from the inside as from the outside. And you get my point. My point is that the moment we have this minimal enclosure, architectural, the moment there is a division between inside and outside, the two are radically incommensurable. If I'm this voice, I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, now let me give you an extreme example that I want to make. On the southern side of the demilitarized zone that divides North from South Korea, South Koreans built a unique visitor's site. A theater building with a large screen-like window in front. It's simply a gigantic hall with a big screen, but screen opens up on what? Not on a stage, not on a, on a, a movie screen, but on the reality itself, towards north. Because this is the only point where from the south, because it's up on a hill, you can see a small North Korean town. So I like this idea that people gather there and pay to see reality, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> the spectacle people observe when they take seats and look north through the window is reality itself. The barren demilitarized zone with walls and beyond a glimpse of North Korea. Now comes the comedy. As if to comply with the fiction, North Korea has built in front of this theater a pure fake, a model village with beautiful houses and so on. What North Korea did is that they painted all the houses, but only the side which looks towards the south, with colors, you know, that the, the, the dresses also are uh, uh, with coupons, ration there. Uh, inhabitants there got special rations, to get better dresses, uh, electricity, which is strictly rationed, is provided for hours every evening, but the local people there have the obligations to walk every evening nicely dressed. The whole reality itself is staged. So, a barren zone is given a phantasmatic status, elevated into a spectacle simply by being in frame. 
we just have to distinguish between two outsides, the direct outside and the inside outside. The two are not the same. In the second case, the outside is no longer simply the unity which contains the inside, but is enclosed by the inside. North Korea, which is something miserable, is sublime when you look at it through the frame of South Korea. There can also be... So, you got my point. My point is that uh, we have outside, which is simply stupid outside of nature. But what it can be developed in literal, in sorry, uh, in uh, art theory very nicely how what all romantics are doing when they select part of outside, uh, uh, waterfall, whatever, is that there is this outside is already seen from some imagined inside. You should always look at an implicit frame. There can also be a false redoubled inside. For example, it happened to me when I was at ZKM, this modern uh, uh, digital art uh, complex in Karlsruhe, in West Germany. There is in a TV screen in front of the entrance to the main toilet area, which shows continuously on it a uh, black and white screen, the inside of a small toilet cube with the empty toilet bowl. And I, total idiot as I am, I found myself in this stupid situation where I had to go to the toilet, so my first reaction was, oh, so nice that they give you information, you know, the toilet is free in there. But I said, wait a minute, but when I enter it, it will no longer be free and people will see me or what. Then, okay, I'm an idiot. It took me some 10 seconds to get it that, of course, this is a running old, old shot and so on. But it works, because they put it. No? Uh, what this mutual encroaching of inside and outside indicates is that inside and outside never cover the entire space. There is always an excess of a third space which gets lost in the division into outside and inside. In human dwellings, buildings, there is an intermediate space, I claim, which is disavowed. We all know it exists, but we don't really libidinally accept its existence. It remains ignored and mostly unsayable. The main content of this invisible space is excrement, canalization, but also the complex network of electricity, digital links, and so on. All this is contained in narrow spaces between walls or floors. We, of course, know very well how excrements leave the house, but our immediate phenomenological re relation to it is a more radical one. It is as if shit disappears into some netherworld out of our sight and out of our world. This is why one of the most unpleasant experiences is to observe the sheet coming back from the hole in the toilet bowl. It is something like the return of the living dead. I <laughs> we rely on this space, but ignore it. Now you will say, but you are dreaming. This is your, your anal obsession. Ah, I claim no, because just remember how in science fiction, horror films and techno thrillers, precisely this dark space between the walls is the space where horrible threats lurk. From spying machine to monsters, contagious animals, cockroaches, rats, and so on and so on. Recall also in science fiction architecture the mysterious topic of an additional floor or room which is not in the building's plan, and where, of course, terrible, uh, terrible things dwell. So you got my point here that 
the way we, of course, reality is one flat reality. And of course, in immediate reality, insight is, as it were, sorry, outside encompasses insight. But what I'm saying is that in our libidinal perception, relation to reality, things always get more complex. Insight and outside are radically incommensurable, which is what you can easily experience, for example, when you are inside a house, and then this house is ruined, half the wall blown off. It's not the same inside. Somehow it changes. It's simply part of the outside. The magic disappears. But again, even more interesting for me is, is this... Uh, uh, is this... Uh, is this me precisely because they are incommensurable inside and outside? The incommensurability again can be proven by this double redoubling. There is outside a simple outside, and there is the sublime outside seen from the inside. Which is why you know you should never forget when you say room with a view that the view is nothing in itself. The view is the view from the room in exactly the same way as goes with nakedness. The best joke about nakedness is for me still the one quoted often by Lacan. He refers to that uh, famous French, uh, 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 French uh, satiric writer Alphonse Allais from 100 years ago, who once in the cafeteria, I will not be obscene, okay, you will be the victim. So, yeah, yeah. so as a woman and said, look what a shame, beneath her clothes she is totally naked. I mean. That's how it works. Okay, now let's go on. So, based on all this, how can you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, back to postmodern architecture. I claim that postmodern architecture, I don't dismiss it. Here I'm not a modernist. Why modernism played this game of, you know, uh, laws started it all with this idea ornament is a crime. And he even put it in extremely racist terms. He claimed that primitive, degenerate people do ornaments. And then the more civilization progresses, the more you go to just lean and mean function and so on. Uh, uh, the, if the modernist idealist is total transparency of function, total continuity between inside and outside, what postmodernism does is at least it brings out the antagonism, the antagonism, the gap between inside and outside and so on, or the terms that are usually used recently by architects, uh, the skin is separated from the body. The skin of a building and wrapping it is separated from the body. This, is, this then opens the space for the ambiguously meaningful forms into which buildings are wrapped often a primitive mimetic symbolism, like the entire bi uh, building resembling an animal, a turtle, a bird, a buck, which this outside is not an expression of its inside, but literally just imposed onto the stuff. Like, since I was in Australia, to give this talk, of course, in Australia you find the most obvious example, the Sydney Opera. I mean, in a typically modern way, the meaning itself is ambiguous. What should... That, you know, that forum which I will not describe it because I would really have to use metaphor. What does it stand for? With my obscene mind, I was very happy to learn that the predominant version is uh, 
gay turtles orgy, or uh, <laughs> turtles uh, anally penetrating each other. But that's considered the common uh, architecture. <laughs> uh, uh, so uh, let me now again uh, give you a simple uh, example. This is then what I'm talking about. This is skin, skin separated from the body, and the body is not just the inside, the body can be buildings of their own. This is one of these boring, I don't know which one, postmodern, stupid, uh, sorry, I took the wrong one. This is what I'm talking about, where you have skin covering up the inside. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, so let's go on. Uh, the link between form and function is cut. There is no causal relationship between the skin, the form, and what is inside. Which are the basic architectural versions of this gap? The zero level is presented by what I already showed you, Kolhas buildings, Rem Kolhas. His formula is the envelope is simply a neutral, enormous box. In its interior, its interior houses the multiple functional spaces which Schenk, this is his own description of his own architecture, Kohlhasis, Schenk within their enormous container like so many floating organs. So again, so, uh, this is the zero level of postmodernism. The container, organs, rooms, whatever, other buildings floating inside, discontinuity between inside and outside. Then, this would be for me somehow the zero level. Just the separation of skin from surface. Then, as in some, especially Daniel Liebeskind projects, the gap between the protective skin and the inner structure is reflected into skin itself. The same external form, an enormous box, is multiplied, relying on the contrast between, let us say, straight vertical horizontal lines and the diagonal lines of external walls. You remember, just to remind of you, this would be, uh, uh, this would be like the minimal reflection where a tension, the gap is inscribed into the external skin itself. The result is a hybrid effect, as if the same building is a condensation of two or more asymmetrical cubes, as if the same formal principle, a few cube box, was applied on different axes. A weird tension and imbalance, a conflict of principles, are thus directly inscribed into the form, as if the actual building lacks a single anchoring point and perspective. The next step is the minimal aestheticization of the external container. It is no longer just a neutral box, but a round shell protecting the jewel inside. Formally, the contrast between outside and inside is usually, this kind of contrast, the, the contrast between the roundness of the skin and the straight lines of inner structures. A round envelope, an egg-like cupola, envelops a box-like vertical horizontal horizontal set of buildings inside, like the giant teacups of the Oriental Arts Center in Shanghai or the National 
Grand Theory of, uh, Theater of China in Beijing with its giant metal glass cover and eggshell protecting the performance buildings. This would be then, again, not just the zero level, remember, just a cube, not just the pure inscription of an antagonism, but the minimal aestheticization, a kind of a protective, protective cup. This is the, the Beijing thing to get an idea. Inside there are buildings, you can see, but it's the minimum aestheticization. And this is even earlier for my taste. This is the, this is the Shanghai, Shanghai center, like three teacups and so on. Uh, uh, the, you remember I used in some of my uh, books this disgusting example of chocolate eggs, Kinder Surprise, where I have the eggs. I mean, these are like, for me, if anything, are this not, is this not a kind of a gigantic, this chocolate Kinder egg, where uh, the jewel is inside and so on. This logic of protecting the jewel inside reaches its climax in the project for the new Marinsky Theater in Leningrad. I kill you if you pronounce the name St. Petersburg. It is and it will be Leningrad. <laughs> the functional box-like theater building in black marble, it's simply an 18th century palace, is, as it were, cocooned by a freestanding irregular glass structure. You see here you have, as it were, the principle and its purest. It's, the building will be the same, they will just kind of uh, cover it up in a cocoon-like way. Then, the last step, the aestheticization of the skin culminates in the so-called, they are the ugliest for me, sculptural Frank Gehry buildings, where the outside shell envelops, enveloping the functional inside is no longer just a shell, even a slightly aestheticized shell, but a meaningful sculpture of its own, of its own. The goal is to achieve uh, the goal is to achieve what uh, what usually people call the Bilbao effect, to create a vibrant public space in the midst of the city's boring grey concrete jungle. Uh, so okay, a couple like, just to get you an idea of this, like this is, I think, in, from Chicago, one Frank Gehry building, again, a sculpture from the outside of its own. This is Tenerife Auditorium in Santa Cruz, another of these, whatever you want, buildings. Uh, then there is yet another variation on this gap between skin and content, the so-called terrain buildings, where the building's surface skin is constructed as a direct continuation of the surrounding terrain, with undulations of a hill covered by grass, a little bit like if you saw Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit's dwellings in the first, you know, it simply, it, it looks just as a small hills countryside and uh, the building is simply, as it were, between the grass, skin, and the earth itself. Okay, the most famous architectural example is here the Yokohama port terminal. It can be seen as the extreme case where, in a way, the whole inside of the building is reduced to the interstitial space between the skin envelope, 
the green or wooden surface and the body of the earth, squeezed in the flattened domain between the two. Not surprisingly, the actual effect of such buildings is the very opposite of the intended naturalization. <coughs> you know, the architects, what they want to do is to say our buildings should organically fit into natural environments, not break the continuity. You, from, if you are outside, you just see the, the grass, the hill going on. But I think the effect is exactly the opposite one. Nature is derealized. It appears as if natural surface of grass is an artificial skin concealing complex machinery. And then, okay, to give you an example, I didn't find a good one. This would be something <coughs> coming close to this skin surface, that it just goes on with the round, but it's, you know, it is as if, imagine Earth itself as a, a living body, and imagine the surface of the Earth conceived as skin and imagine squeezing in between living space. Uh, then, okay, to conclude all the variations, there is maybe another version of the relation between inside and outside, so that we turn it around as here in London with Tate Modern, where the outside is a decaying old abandoned derelict megalith, power station or whatever, so that you know, you don't keep, as in Marinsky Theatre, the old inside building and right on. You keep the old outside, but you totally renovate, totally change the inside. Okay, so much for description. Now a little bit of interpretation. The ideological political investment of such venues becomes clear when they are raised in a town caught into a political and not only political battle. Two examples from Israel. On October 28, 2008, the Israeli Supreme Court ruled that the Simon Wiesenthal Center can build its long-planned Center for Human Dignity, Museum of Tolerance, that this museum can be built on a contested site in the middle of Jerusalem. Who will design it? Of course, it's a boring story. Frank Gehry, of course. Uh, this Vast complex will consist of a general museum, children's museum, theater, conference center, library, gallery, lecture halls, cafeterias, and so on. The museum's declared mission will be to promote civility and respect among different segments of the Jewish community and between people of all faiths. The only obstacle overrun by the Supreme Court ruling was that the museum site served as Jerusalem's main Muslim cemetery until 1948. This dark spot wonderfully enacts, I think, the hidden truth of this multi-confessional project. It is a place celebrating tolerance, open to all, but protected by the Israeli cupola, which ignores the subterranean victims of intolerance. As if one needs a little bit of tolerance to create the space for a museum of tolerance. And as if this is not enough, there is another even vast, more vast project going on in Jerusalem. Israel is quietly carrying out a $100 million multi-year development plan in the so-called Holy Basin, the site of some of the most significant religious and national heritage uh, just outside the walled old city. 
It's part of an effort to strengthen the status of Jerusalem as Israeli uh, 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 capital. A good part of the execution of this plan is outsourced to, private, to a private group which is simultaneously buying up Palestinian property for Jewish settlement in East Jerusalem. As part of the plan, garbage dumps and wastelands are being cleared and turned into large gardens and parks now already accessible to visitors who can walk along new footpaths and take in the majestic views along with new signs and displays that point out significant points of Jewish history and conveniently many of the unauthorized Palestinian <coughs> houses had to be erased to create the space for the redevelopment of the area. This whole area is an infinitely complicated landscape dotted with shrines and still hidden treasures of three major monotheistic religions, so the official argument is that its improvement is for everyone's benefit, Jews, Muslims and Christians, since it involves restoration that will draw more visitors to an area of exceptional global interest. However, as people from Peace Now, the Israel Peace Organization noted, the plan aims to create an ideological tourist park which will determine Jewish dominance in the area. So, back to my main line. The central semiotic mystery of this kind of performance arts or religious, whatever, cultural, multifunctional venues is the mystery of formal redoubling. Why a house within a house? Why does a container itself have to be contained? Does not this sometimes freakish display of inconsistency and excess, does it not cry out loudly, loudly, functioning as a symptom, a message encoded in this mess? What if this redoubling renders the contradiction of public space, which is privately controlled, of a sacred space of art, which should be open to profane amusement? A close analysis of the envelope that encompasses buildings brings us, I think, to the same result. Here I refer to a very intelligent uh, architect who is also uh, a writer. He was the key person in doing that Yokohama port terminal, the Spanish Alejandro Zaira Polo, who writes, wrote a lot about the concept of architectural envelope as the border between outside and inside. He defines envelope as the membrane which separates the inside of a building from the outside. And although Zaira Polo is very pro-capitalist, he is as close as you can come to a Deleuzean capitalist. He claims that we live in this Deleuzean terms, deteriorized postmodern capitalism, and he tries to draw uh, consequences from it. His main reference, apart from Deleuze, interestingly, is Peter Sloterdijk. Sloterdijk's notion of spheres, spheres in the sense of, uh, of immunization, of cordoning off part of space. According to Zaira Polo, far from advocating a return to pre-modern containment, Sloterdijk was the first to propose what one can call the provincialism for the global era. A quote from Zaira Polo. The world is a foamy space filled with bubbles and balloons of different scales and qualities. 
This capsular society and its phenomena, such as global provincialism, the politics of climatization, and the social utility, describe a new paradigm that requires not just a reconsideration of the technologies and economics of the buildings, but of its political, their political, social, and psychological implications. End of quote. So which are the political implications of this appetite for the envelope as a device of insulation and immunization? And I find this, again, quite a correct insight into how this Deleuzean praising of nomadism, deterioration, etc., is just one side of the story. The, it's crucial that this deterioration that always generates a kind of a autopoetic self-structuring, which is immunization, enclosure spaces, and so on and so on. Apart from the relative aesthetic and political autonomy it provides, the envelope provides, and the obvious environmental function, function protecting part of space. Envelope also serves, Zaira Polio makes this clear, as a security device, a quote. The design of spherical envelopes has consequently focused recently on the construction of the surface itself, both as an <coughs> environmental and security device and as the locus of symbolic representation, end of quote. The security task is here not the same as that of the traditional building walls protecting the inside from external dangers. The fateful difference is that the envelope secured a privatized public space, another quote. A more permeable definition of the property boundary is more likely to effectively accommodate a fluid relationship between private and public in an age when the public realm is increasingly built and managed by private agents." End of quote. So, from the Deleuzean poetry of fluid deterritorialization, we are back to the task of how to enact and protect the private enclosure of public spaces. If traditional architecture was an attempt to enclose the inside from the outside, today, Architecture tries to enclose the outside itself to create a protected screen outside separated from the wild outside. The envelope which isolates a set of buildings is the urban architectural version of the enclosure of the commons. Not only the interior of a house, its exterior itself is cordoned off and climatized. Not only with regard to heat and air quality, but also with regard to the undesired presence of potentially toxic subjects. The last quote from Zaira Polio, Sloterdijk's politics of climatization points to a process in which growing sectors of urban space are given to private agents to develop and maintain. Gardeners, event managers, private security agents are part of the design of these atmospheres. Kohlhasis, junk space, is another description of the same phenomenon of sanitization of ever larger areas of the city, providing a safe environment, assuming we are prepared to surrender police duties to private security services. End of quote. This tendency reached its peak for the time being in the so-called Crystal Island project in Moscow recently announced by Norman Foster, with 
Two and a half million square meters under a single envelope, it will be the world's largest building, five times the size of Pentagon. The project is described as an example of sustainability, able to improve the environmental performance of the building by swallowing ever larger areas of the city under a single envelope designed to enhance natural ventilation and daylight and so on and so on. Incidentally, all this, I think this, there is a strict class dimension in all this favorable topic today of sustainability. You know, like everything should be sustainable at no ecological costs and so on and so on. Buildings should be sustainable, of course, then. The, the amount of energy, material, money you spend for such a sustainable building, of course. It costs ten times more than the building full being would pollute and so on. I simply think that, uh, that this idea of sustainability is, uh, I don't have time to develop this, is our own version of the craziest idea of Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, you know, this idea of Druce idea, you know, that they have. This is, they call sustainability this kind of a self-reliance and so on. So it's easy to laugh at North Korea, we are following their advice. <laughs> The official progressive ideology and politics like the New Labour here in the UK, they like to celebrate such projects as models of the revitalization of the decaying city centers. However, I think Zaira Polo is right to ask the question whether this is actually a regeneration of the urban centers or whether it is the takeover of the inner cities by a sort of alien organization with air conditioning and private security. And I think, again, this is the truth of all these uh, performer arts venues and so on. You have the ordinary city, grey, ordinary people, and then you have these secured, immunized, uh, air-conditioned public spaces. That's crucial. Not private. Privatized public spaces. This brings us to the social antagonism these buildings try to resolve. On the one hand, to build a performing arts venue rates as a holy grail for architects. A quote from a propaganda book for performing arts venues. Quote, unlike the more conventional types of buildings, such as offices, housing, even civic architecture, which have to conform to the streetscape, a performing arts venue can afford to be bold and unusual to stand out. End of quote. So again, here you don't have to be functionalist. Here you can let your imagination run wild, and so on. However, this space for creative freedom is counteracted by the demand for the building's multifunctionality. Venue managers cannot, another quote from that propaganda book, cannot simply rely on performances themselves to provide a sufficient attraction. The building must create an experience and a sense of place for its increasingly demanding audience. It is with such intangibles that events can really win against home entertainment. Thought must be given to all aspects of a visit, from the foyer and bars to the facilities and ease of access, and so on and so on. So you remember when, already a month ago, I developed this idea how we have today a specific type of publicity, which is no longer utilitarian quality of the product but, product, but also not its symbolic value, like I signal my status, but the experience provided, like 
you drink uh, Starbucks coffees, experience of community, participating in ecological projects, and so on and so on. Here also, it's a nice example, they focus on this, like the point is how you as a visitor will, how you will experience it. This demand, I claim, is not only financial, but profoundly ideological. Here we come at the ideology beneath this performance arts venues. It reflects a cultural tension. Again, I quote from the book, incidentally, the title of the book, if you are interested in, I don't advise you to buy it, it's boring, otherwise it's Michael Hammond, Performing Architecture, Opera Houses, Theatres and Concert Halls for the 21st Century, London 2006. Okay, here is the last quote. The perception that public funds are being spent on elitist buildings has always been an Achilles heel for these projects, leaving them open to attacks from all quarters. And in today's more transparent and politically correct society, it is the issue of inclusion more than any other that has influenced the design of contemporary performing spaces. As a result, the performing arts venue has had to be redefined for the 21st century. The new generation of buildings must be part of the public realm with access to only the core areas being restricted by the requirement for a ticket. These venues include public activities within and around the complex, attracting a wider range of visitors. You notice here this incredibly disgusting uh, patronizing attitude like the theater only would have been only for the elite to get stupid ordinary people, you must offer cafeteria and so on. Uh, this constant effort to counteract the threat of elitism signals a series of oppositions within which performance arts buildings operate. Public-private, open restraint, elite popular, all variations on the basic motive of class struggle, which we are told no longer exists today. The space of this opposition, oppositions delineates the problem to which performance arts buildings are a solution. How does the anti-elitist architecture of performance arts venues fit these coordinates? Its attempt to overcome elitist exclusivity fails since it reproduces the paradoxes of the upper-class liberal openness. Its falsity the failure to achieve its goal is the falsity and limitation of our tolerant liberal capitalism. The effective message of the political unconscious of this performance arts venues is democratic exclusivity. They create a multifunctional, egalitarian open space, but the very access to this space is invisibly filtered and privately controlled. In more political terms, <coughs> performance arts venues tried to enact civic normality in a state of emergency. They construct an open space which is cocooned, protected and filtered. This brings us to what is false about the anti-elitism of performance arts values. It is not that they are secretly elitist. It is their very anti-elitism, its implicit ideological equation of great art with elitism, which is false. Difficult as it may sometimes be for the broad public to get into, to really enjoy Schoenberg or Weberen or in paintings, Paul Klee or whomever, 
there is, I claim, nothing elitist about great art. Great art is, by definition, universal emancipatory, potentially addressing at us all. When in elite places like the old Metropolitan Opera in New York, upper classes were meeting for an opera performance, their social posturing was in blatant contradiction with the works shown on the stage. To see Mozart, and if there is a composer who is top of the top, elite, it's Mozart, to see Mozart and the rich crowd as belonging to the same space is an obscenity. There is a well-known story from the early years of Metropolitan Opera when a high society lady, I think one of the Morgan, of the bankers Morgan family, uh, one of the opera's great patrons, arrived, she arrived half an hour late, half an hour into the first act. She demanded that the performance be interrupted for a couple of minutes and the light turned on, the opera performance, so that she could inspect the dresses of other ladies with her binoculars. And of course, she got it. <laughs> if anything, Mozart belonged to the poor in the upper stalls who spent their last dollars to see the opera. Far from making the exclusive temple of high art more accessible, it is the very surrounding of expensive cafeterias and so on, which is effectively exclusive of elitists. You see my simple point? I think it's exactly the opposite. My God, poor guy students spare just to go to the opera. It's the rich guys who occupy the space, which is allegedly here to make it more popular and so on and so on. So again, I think that, that you can, although you can give, as you always can, a whole series of these uh, factual utilitarian reasons, we live in global warming, we need to be protected, and so on or whatever, it's clear that I think this, that, that for me, performance arts venues precisely materialize in all this redoubling of space, publicly controlled space, and so on, this tension of, let's call it, democratic exclu exclusivism. It is for everyone, but how to filter it properly, nonetheless. So, uh, is there anywhere here? Where is here a possibility, if there is one, a, a possibility to, uh, a possibility to make something out of this? What would a progressive, I ask a very naive question, what would a progressive architect have done with all this? Okay, my basic notion would be drop the project itself, do something for ordinary people. I mean, I, 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 uh, I, 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 I saw in Zurich, for example, in the suburb of Zurich, or in many cities, uh, some attempts for even counterculture rock and so on to occupy these famous abandoned factories in the suburbs and to make an, an alternate performance art center. But I don't, I, I, I don't think it properly works. But uh, so again, for me, the, the one should do a proper democratic thing and change the focus simply and ask what can be done in those 95% of ordinary great buildings. Something should be changed there. But nonetheless, there is an interesting phenomenon going on here in these buildings. But maybe some kind of creative space is open. Here I would like to conclude with a reference to, of course, my favorite uh, 
Darwinian biologist uh, Stephen Jay Gould. Maybe you know about Gould's great polemic with Dawkins apropos of, of so-called notion of exaptation. Gould's idea that the fundamental mechanism of evolutionary choice is not direct adaptation but exaptation. Exaptation in many different two main meanings. One meaning is that an organ which originally developed for a certain function is then reappropriated for a totally different function. And then much more interesting is another meaning, although it resembles the first one, where you have something which develops not so much as a certain, for a certain function, but as a kind of a necessary byproduct for this function. And then this kind of a non-functional excess can then be exapted, that is to say, adapted for another new, totally different, uh, for totally different uh, purpose. Why is this so interesting? Because Gould goes here to the end, and he, and I am totally on his side here, he claims and I think he triumphantly wins against all those vulgar Darwinians like Steven Pinker and so on. He claims that language itself is a product of exaptation. That you cannot account for language in evolutionary terms. You cannot play any of these pseudo-Marxist, late Friedrich Engels games. You know that people, when people were collaborating with division of labor, as Engels put it in an incredible circular reasoning, uh, people discovered that in order to collaborate, they have many things to tell each other, so they invented language, you know, but uh, uh, to invent this, you already have to have language and so on. So, of course, language is of great use, but this is all secondary. And he even specializes in what way, something to do with, uh, with uh, horizontal posture, the use of arms and so on, developed excess brain and jaws and so on. He has a very nice explanation of how language emerge so that something which the, the, the form, the position of the head, which developed for totally different reasons, was readapted to this use. Why am I mentioning Gould? What has this to do with architecture? Ah, here comes the beauty. If you read some Gould and you should, you will discover that his original, he took the very idea from architecture. His original example is so-called spandrels in architecture. Uh, he takes the example of San Marco Church in Venice. The idea is that uh, when the way they were doing churches, but now the term is generalized, <coughs> when you, especially when you combine different structuring principles, now I'm talking as it is obvious to some of you, I'm ashamed, I will kill myself if some of you will tell me I'm an architect, no? Please don't say this if you are it. Uh, but the idea is that especially when you use different structuring principles in the very elementary way, like you have a church which is basically square forms, but then you have a cupola or a tower or whatever which is round, that always when you combine different structuring principles, there are uh, places which are here of no use at all. Just for example, he shows in a wonderful way Gould how in the St. Marco church, because of how the cupola is supported by square forms, you have some kind of an empty triangle forms. And then they were used to put in statues. 
but in a proper logical form, it's clear that it was not meant to be a statue. It was a kind of a necessary structural excess with no function, but you can ex-act it in the Gould sense, reappropriate it for a totally different version. And then it's interesting how Gould himself at some point explodes into different architectural uses. He even goes in a too simple way often, claiming how, for example, I don't know, one of the, in Paris at least, proverbial places for homeless people to stay beneath the bridges. I mean, beneath the bridges, it wasn't meant for homeless people to stay. But you know that you, you, this, and I think, and here maybe a materialist, and I really mean materialist analysis, because what materialism means is precisely reasoning against teleology. That you see how teleology always presupposes some, some opportunistic bricolage, tinkering, change. But here, some interesting things are happening in this performance art venues. You know, we, we, with all this interplay of multiple buildings and so on, there are great interstitial spaces which are totally non-functional. And I was told that especially in Japan, and don't underestimate the Japanese, on the one hand I'm a racist, Japanese, I doubt if they are human. <laughs> but they are the most intelligent, the, the, the put it, because, you know, Japanese know all about these paradoxes with uh, bringing utilitarian function to its absurd. You know, like I already mentioned it here years, years ago, you remember that I forgot the name, I think Shin Dogu, but I'm not sure, that it was more popular some 20 years ago when I was younger, that high art of bringing functional products to their extreme, which is ridiculous, it was a big fashion, I have some five, six volumes, the rule is the following one, you should construct a small practical object which is feasible, it shouldn't be nonsense, it should function. But it must be so ridiculous that you, are, you should be sure that it will not be commercialized. The moment it can really be commercialized, you are out. For example, I don't know, I even uh, uh, bought one but it broke down. You, uh, this one, okay, they cheated, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, glasses with... Uh, why? Well, not so that you can <laughs> walk safely in rain and no. Or, for example, you have uh, butter, butter as a lipstick, so that if no, if you buy it, then you can just as a lipstick uh, put butter on. Or, 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 for example, fresh water. It sounds even practical for me. It's an inverted umbrella and a small glass so you can walk in the rain and always drink fresh and so on. You know, so along this Japanese line, I, and no wonder that I read that precisely in some of these Japanese performance arms venues, really maybe slightly, I wouldn't say subversive, interesting things are happening when these interstitial spaces were occupied by either, I don't know, avant-garde, leftist group, whatever, and then they were first tolerated a little bit, like they thought, oh, perfect, we will integrate them and so on. But then at some point the focus shifted, they noticed that more people are coming to enjoy this alternate versions then and so on. So maybe this is this is this is one way. This is one way to do it. That to simply to 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 invest, to reappropriate this excessive non-functional interstitial spaces. Okay. I, today I tried to be not too long. <laughs>
Tomorrow it will also be like one hour and a quarter, and then on, on Thursday and Friday it's long, boring Marxism again. So thanks very much, and if you have some.